ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Palestinian gunmen have crossed into Israel, opening fire on civilians in a surprise dawn attack. This is one of the most serious escalations in the Israel-Palestinian conflict in years. Civilians appear to have been taken as hostages to the Palestinian territory. Israel's defence minister says the country's military is prepared to eliminate Gaza following Hamas's deadly terrorist attacks which have killed 1,000 people. Hamas began its coordinated attack on Israel with a massive rocket bombardment, followed by thousands of militants breaching the Gaza-Israeli border, killing soldiers and civilians, and abducting men, women and children. It's estimated that more than 1,400 Israelis were killed and over 199 taken hostage. The Israeli government made a declaration of war and has promised to destroy Hamas. And for the past two weeks, Israel has pounded Gaza, as well as cutting off Gaza's electricity, water, food and fuel supplies. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, these retaliatory strikes have killed thousands of Palestinians, many civilians, and thousands more have been injured and made homeless. Politicians across the Western world have declared their support for Israel and its right to defend its citizens. To date, less has been said about the impact of Israel's military response on citizens in Gaza. In this rear vision with me, Annabelle Quince, Gaza, and how and why this tiny strip of land has become the epicentre of tension and conflict in the Middle East. The Gaza Strip is a narrow piece of land on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, bordered by Israel on the east and the north, and Egypt to the southwest. It covers an area of just 365 square kilometres. That's almost 34 times smaller than the area of Sydney. The Gaza Strip as a place didn't exist till 1948 as Professor Ilan Pape, Director of the European Centre for Palestinian Studies at the University of Exeter, explains. There was no Gaza Strip before 1948. Palestine was under British rule between 1918 to 1948. Britain decided to leave Palestine and refer the issue of Palestine to the United Nations. British mandated Palestine included the areas that we now call the State of Israel, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Academic and activist Norman Finkelstein, author of Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom. The original partition plan for Palestine, the plan that was presented in 1947 by the United Nations, was supposed to divide Palestine between the Jewish state, or the state to be designated for Jews, which was roughly 56% of Palestine, and the designated Arab state, which was roughly 44% of Palestine. The vote on the United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine passed in November 1947. It gave more land to the Jews than to the Palestinians, despite the Palestinian population being twice the size of the Jewish population. Needless to say, the Palestinians were not happy. 
The result of the vote sent both Jews and Arabs through the streets of Jerusalem, the Jews dancing in joy and the Arabs rioting in anger. British responsibility ended on May the 15th, 1948, with the departure of the High Commissioner. On the same day, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the independent state of Israel. Within hours, the new state was at war with the four Arab countries surrounding it. For six months, the fighting continued. The Israelis lost the old city of Jerusalem to Jordan, but managed to hold on to most of their territory elsewhere. During the war that ensued, Israel expanded its borders beyond what the UN partition plan stated. Israel absorbed 80% of Palestine. The 20% that remained outside its borders included what we now call the West Bank and Gaza. In the course of the war, Israel expelled about 750,000 Palestinians, approximately 290,000 were expelled to Gaza. I would say that the original population in Gaza was tripled by the arrival of the new refugees in 1948, and the space could not cater properly for so many people. Gaza was a small town, and it had some very nice villages around it. And in 1948, it all turned into one huge refugee camp. I would say that the vast majority of the people in Gaza are second and third generation of refugees from 1948. Very few are the original people of Gaza. At the end of the war, the Gaza Strip fell under the control of the Egyptians. Look, first of all, it must be clear that the Gaza Strip didn't have one day of freedom ever since, ever since it exists. I mean, Gaza was always controlled by someone. I'm Gidon Levy, and I'm a columnist for Haaretz Daily Newspaper in Tel Aviv. The years under Egypt were the years of recovering from the trauma of 48. Those were refugees who lost everything hundreds of thousands who lost everything, their homes, their properties, their beloved ones, their jobs, nothing. And uh, they were all living on, on aid that they got from UNRWA, from the agency of the UN. And it was not such a long period. It was only uh, from 48 to 67 that Egypt was there. Was there ever any, any sense the Gaza Strip could actually become part of Egypt? Was that ever something that was contemplated? No, because Egypt didn't want it. Israel would love even today to make Gaza part of Egypt, but Egypt never wanted it because Egypt has its own problems and the people of Gaza are not Egyptian, they are Palestinians. On the 5th of June 1967, war broke out between Israel and a coalition of Arab states. The war became known as the Six-Day War. Monday, June the 5th, 1967, Dawns on the forces poised as they have been for weeks against one another. The Egyptians this morning launched an air and land attack. At dawn, Egyptian armor advanced on the Negev. Our forces are engaging the enemy. Israel defeated the Arab armies and took control over the Sinai, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights and Gaza. Israel did not annex the two territories, but it did integrate them both 
It built settlements in each of the West Bank and Gaza, as well as East Jerusalem. I'm Khaled El-Gindi, Senior Fellow at the Middle East Institute and Director of the Palestinian-Israeli Affairs Program. And both Gaza and the West Bank were under military rule. They were ruled by an entity called the Civil Administration, which was the military government. So the Israeli military ran the schools, hospitals. They were the government. Palestinians in Gaza had different license plates than Israel and also different than the West Bank. And so they were easily identifiable. They had Israeli-issued ID cards. But there wasn't, for most of that time after 67, there wasn't strict movement restriction on Palestinians. That happened primarily after the first Palestinian uprising in the late 1980s. Suddenly the Gazans became part of the Israeli economy. I'm Nathan Shachar, Swedish writer and journalist. I'm the correspondent of the Swedish newspaper Dagens Nyheter. The Israeli economy then was not impressive, but it was much more developed than the Gazan economy. And suddenly the Palestinians, of not only of Gaza, but of of the West Bank, which was also occupied at the same time, they could earn much more working in Israel than they had been able to do before in the Egyptian economy. As to the question of rights, they obviously exercised no rights, and in Gaza they had no rights whatsoever. However, I don't think it would be correct to call it oppressive because Gazans were interested, as most people are, first and foremost in providing a livelihood for their family, having gainful employment. And you cannot say the system was desperate until around 1984. In 1984, Israel's economy took a downturn and the situation economically became more difficult in Gaza. And by 1987, it wasn't altogether a surprise that there would be a resistance to the Israeli occupation. The sound of full-scale riots by Palestinians of the Gaza Strip on the Israeli-occupied Mediterranean coast, just north of Egyptian territory in the Sinai, as Israeli defense and security authorities crack down on the Palestinians. In 1987, the first major uprising of Palestinians began in Gaza. It's known as the First Intifada. The First Intifada was political. No form of Palestinian political aspirations was tolerated. The PLO was a banned organization. Palestinians were not allowed to express their national or political aspirations in any way. In my book, The Biggest Prison on Earth, I describe the Israeli policy towards the people of Gaza as moving between two models of a mega prison. There is the model of the open prison, in which people of Gaza, or some people of Gaza, are allowed to go into Israel, find jobs, employment, and as long as they are not resisting the Israeli occupation, they can go along with their business and probably even economically be better off than they were under the Egyptian rule. They still would be living in refugee camps. 
However, Palestinians, like any other people in the world, did not reconcile to such a reality. Israel wanted to integrate the territories without making the people who lived there citizens, because that would dramatically alter the demographic composition of Israel. It would cease to be demographically a Jewish state. And at the same time, it had to prohibit any kind of political activity. So the uprising was a response to things like arrests of political activists, torture, settlement construction. The Israeli military was intent on expanding settlements throughout the occupied territories. And so Palestinians reached a point a full generation after Israel had occupied the area where they said, enough. And there was a rebellion that lasted for several years. The Israeli authorities are playing it down, but after eight days of continuous civil disobedience by the Palestinians of the occupied territories, the violence and the anger have reached a fever pitch. It went on for four years, at least, this first uprising. And Israeli soldiers who meant to practice and train to fight an army, they became policemen. And most soldiers hated it. And the army leadership warned the politicians that if this goes on for too long, it will diminish our fighting quality if we ever have to fight a real war against real enemies. The defense minister, Yitzhak Rabin, who was a socialist or a social democrat, he slowly started to change his mind during this uprising. His attitude at the beginning had been, you know, we must quash this uprising, otherwise the whole Arab world and the region will lose respect. But he and, and many other Israeli politicians, they changed their minds and they slowly started to realize that if Israel is to live in peace in the long run, there must be some kind of settlement with the Palestinians. It's widely accepted that the first intifada was the catalyst for the Oslo Accords, a pair of agreements between Israel and the PLO that created the Palestine National Authority, which gave Palestinians limited self-governance over parts of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The agreements were also meant to lead to a permanent peace and the resolution of questions relating to the international border between Israel and a future Palestinian state, Israeli settlements in the occupied territories and the status of Jerusalem. That was the idea. The problem was that the Israelis and Palestinians had very different visions and understandings of what autonomy would mean. For Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority was the precursor to an eventual Palestinian state. They would establish these political institutions, the presidency, the parliament, various ministries, and then little by little, Israel would cede more and more territory to the control of the Palestinian Authority until a final status arrangement was agreed to that would eventually result in an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza with East Jerusalem as its capital. The Israelis had a different vision for Oslo. They were publicly still opposed to the creation of a Palestinian state. 
I think Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister who signed the accords and who was later assassinated, he himself was very much against the creation of a Palestinian state and saw the result being a kind of autonomy plus on a permanent basis where Israel would retain control over all of the West Bank and Gaza, but without having to deal with the day-to-day affairs of Palestinian life. That would be in the hands of a Palestinian government. That process stagnated. And after Rabin was assassinated, there was opposition on both sides to the Oslo Accords. On the Palestinian side, Hamas became the primary opponent. They would violently oppose the process through suicide bombings and other attacks, occasionally on the military, but also very much focused on attacking civilians. And then you had the more extreme elements in in Israel who were also kind of terrified at the prospect. Back then, it felt inevitable that we were moving toward a Palestinian state, and they wanted to do everything they could to stop that. And killing Rabin was, was one of those. After he was killed, the right wing was much more emboldened. And 1997, Netanyahu became prime minister for the first time. And the process basically didn't go anywhere. And at the same time, settlement construction accelerated. And so Palestinians were quite frustrated. And we had this very right-wing, intransigent government in Israel. In 2000, a second uprising or intifada erupted. Angry Israelis took to the streets in Hadera after the bombing, the second in a week claimed by the militant Islamic group Hamas. Seven Israelis were killed in the earlier attack. The second uprising in September 2000 was the product of a deep disappointment in Palestinian society. According to the Oslo plan, there would have been a five-year transition period from the old occupation to a Palestinian state. This did not happen because the peace process was set back first by the murder of the Israeli Prime Minister Rabin and then by the victory in the elections of 1996 of the Israeli nationalist right and Benjamin Netanyahu, who did not want to carry on the peace process. The Second Intifada lasted five years and ended with an agreement to stop all hostilities. It's estimated that the conflict resulted in the death of approximately 3,000 Palestinians and 1,000 Israelis. In September the same year, to the surprise of almost everyone, Israel pulled out of Gaza and abandoned its settlements. Well, it was an important event. Paradoxically, it was one of the most hawkish Israeli politicians who had sponsored and pushed settlements all through his career, The general Ariel Sharon, he became prime minister in the early 2000s and he reached the conclusion that this was not viable to have Israeli settlements inside the Gaza Strip. And he decided in 2004 to evacuate those settlements. And this caused a furor within his party and in the end he founded a new party called Kadima because his own party would not back him. And this party became successful And Sharon went through with this evacuation, which was very traumatic. And and the settlers and their friends, they did everything they could to avoid it. And the settlers still today, even now, they have dreams of returning and re-establishing their settlements in the Gaza Strip. The Gaza disengagement was a strictly unilateral 
Israeli process. They made that point very clear. I was part of the team that was advising negotiators at that time, and they wanted it to be strictly unilateral. This was not about a negotiation. They did not want to negotiate the parameters. The calculation on the Israeli side was keeping the settlements in Israel was a losing battle. There were something like 7,000 Israeli settlers at the peak of the settlement project in Gaza in a Palestinian population of what was then, I suppose, around 1.6 million or so. Demographically, they were losing that battle. And Ariel Sharon, who was then prime minister, decided we need to cut Gaza loose in order to focus on what really matters, and that is the West Bank in Jerusalem. And they decided to pull the settlers out. When they left, the problem was that Gaza was essentially closed. Although there was some agreement, the agreement on movement and access, an American broker deal that would ensure that Gaza did not become what Palestinians saw as an open air prison, that you wouldn't just simply leave and then lock the door behind you. And so it was an attempt by the Americans to ensure, you know, a certain number of trucks could come in and out of Gaza, that Gaza would be allowed to trade, that there would be access to the West Bank. But none of those actually happened. And then we saw occasional barrages of rockets from Gaza that led to a further closure and eventually paved the way for Hamas to be elected in 2006. Legislative elections were held in the Palestinian territories in January 2006. The result was a victory for the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. I'm not sure the Palestinians voted Hamas because they wanted religion and extremists. I think they were just sick of the corruption and nepotism of the Palestinian government, of the Fatah PLO. And they have seen Hamas being efficient, running schools and helping people in poor areas. Most Hamas operatives were idealists. They were extremists, but they were better liked. When Israel left the Strip, there was an opportunity for Hamas to say, Okay, we will not shoot rockets at you and we will try to reach uh, some kind of modus vivendi. But it did not happen. Hamas declared that we will keep shooting rockets at Israel, even if you leave. And they did. In 2006, the American president, George Bush, George W. Bush, he forced Israel and the Palestinians to allow open, free elections in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And to their own shock and horror, the Islamists won the election. Hamas's election victory was a surprise to everyone, including probably Hamas itself. The initial attempt by Hamas was to try to form a unity government with Fatah because Hamas was a banned organization around the world. The international community, the Europeans, the Americans, the Japanese, you know, everyone, they could not deal with Hamas as a designated terrorist organization. That created an untenable situation on the Palestinian side where the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, was essentially faced with a choice of, do I cancel the result of a democratic election the way the Americans are pushing me to do and therefore risk a civil war with Hamas? Or do we move ahead with some sort of unity government that includes Hamas, not to the satisfaction of the international community, but at least it keeps the PA whole and risk a total international boycott. So the result was a civil war in 2007 that ultimately led Hamas to take control of Gaza forcibly. So what was the response of Israel to the election of Hamas? 
The response was to totally separate Gaza from the West Bank and Israel disconnected itself from Gaza. And the world, I must tell you, no country in the EU, for example, recognizes Hamas and is ready to negotiate with Hamas. It became isolated and more militant. I mean, I guess the Israeli argument has always been that Hamas is a terrorist organization and therefore that was the whole point in cutting itself off from Gaza. Sure, Hamas is a terror organization, so was the PLO and and Israel sat with the PLO and talked to the PLO and made agreements with the PLO. You make peace with uh, the worst enemies, not with friends. But above all, it's the positions of the of the Hamas, which is, as I said, a fundamentalistic organization, are also much tougher. And I'm not sure they would re- be ready to recognize Israel or to get to any kind of compromise. But Israel never really challenged it. I did, never understood what's wrong to sit down with them and to see if we can get an agreement or not. By sitting together, you don't pay any price. But Israel refused and the world backed Israel to boycott Hamas. The boycott destroyed the Gazan economy and set in train a cycle of violence. Hamas would send rockets into Israel, Israel would respond by bombing Gaza, and civilians on both sides died. Since the blockade, the Gaza economy has been eviscerated. There's no middle class anymore People have been reduced to poverty. More than 50% of the population is unemployed. In any other society, when unemployment gets into double digits, the political leaders know there's serious trouble and instability on the way. And most of Gaza's population live on international assistance. It was quite a miserable existence. So occasionally, Hamas would need to release pressure. What almost always came out of those rounds of violence was some sort of loosening of the blockade. There would be new arrangements for how many trucks could come in and out, how many work permits Palestinians could have inside Israel. I mean, Israel even controlled the fishing zone, you know, how far out Palestinian fishermen could fish in the Mediterranean. In a sense, the violence worked. It would allow for loosening of the blockade. And it became manageable for both sides. It became very predictable. This pattern of rockets, Israel would retaliate, there would be a ceasefire, there would be some new arrangement that maybe was or wasn't fully implemented. And then the next year, we'd see a similar pattern. On October the 7th, the pattern changed. Hamas launched an attack that breached all Israel's defences. Everyone was surprised, including and especially Israelis. I think what makes this such a colossal intelligence failure on the Israeli side is Gaza is the most heavily surveilled place on earth. They have drones in the air constantly. They know everything that goes in and out of Gaza. For Hamas to mount an assault of this scale, breaching the border, that was pretty remarkable. But also what was remarkable was the the absence of any real resistance on the part of Israeli security forces once they were inside Israel. So a lot of these towns and villages, the defenses completely broke down. And so for Hamas to inflict that kind of a a breach was enormous. And I think the other thing that was surprising was the brutality of it. I have to separate between justifying something and understanding something. I don't justify what they have done, but I totally understand their emotions. And they went very far. I'm not sure we are aware already to everything they've done there. And this is unjustified in any case. I mean, nothing justifies this. 
But as I try to describe you in the last uh, half an hour that we are talking, you can only imagine yourself, what does it do to a young guy who lives in those conditions, who has no perspective for the future, who has no present, who lives in very poor conditions. The only outcome can be that such a young guy tells himself, I have nothing to lose. So I can understand that all kinds of mutations will come out when you grow and live in such a reality. And that's the outcome. I don't want to say that it's inevitable because not all the people of Gaza became a terrorist. Most of them are not. But don't expect Gaza to be normal when it lives in no normal conditions. Israeli journalist Gidon Levy. My other guests, Khaled Elgindi, Nathan Shahar, Norm Finkelstein and Elan Pape. The sound engineer is Tegan Nichols. I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.